Heaps good politics. Come on and put us to the test. Make a change in the nick of time. Forget the rest of... Heaps good politics. Alrighty, listeners, welcome back. We hope you've recovered from last week's extravaganza. My name's Sebastian. I'm coming to you from Perth, WA, and I'm joined by Roger. Hello, everyone. And Maud. Hello again. So today we're going to be talking about health. But just as a recap, Roger, what did we discuss last week? Yeah, I mean, last week we, we covered basically what's going on in the election, who the major parties are, and what the new changes to the political scene in South Australia are with Nick Xenophon and, and the redistribution and all that good stuff. And today is health. Everyone's favourite topic. Love to talk about it. Love to transform it. Love to spend money on it. And and spend money on it we do. It is a huge part of our budget. Uh, nearly $6 billion a year and, um, and almost a third of South Australia's GDP. One of the fastest growing sectors in terms of both expenditure and jobs. And um, undoubtedly it affects everyone. So in this episode we're going to talk about healthcare under labour for the last few years. And also where to from here? What can you expect from the major part? And also Xenophon and what he brings to the table with his team SA Best. So let's get started. Yeah, and we can't really talk about SA Health Policy at the moment without talking about transforming health. Seb, why don't you run us through what transforming health is? I'd love to, Roger. Thank you for the opportunity. Transforming Health was a policy we had in Australia about hospital reconfiguration. It was announced in 2015 where then Health Minister Jack Snelling made an announcement to rejig the system to make it more to improve patient outcomes and it formally concluded with the opening of the new Royal Adelaide Hospital in 2017. And I guess there was a bit of a framework to guide uh, whether this was a successful transformation and, and indeed why it was necessary. The installation of the policy, the SA Health had identified multiple points of quality and standards that needed to be met. And then in 2017, the Health Performance Council did a review of these areas and prioritised four areas that were for ongoing monitoring. And those were essentially that too many deaths occurred in the hospitals, people were waiting too long for discharge or placement, there were too many patients being transferred between hospitals, and seniors were unavailable at night. Alrighty, so that that's what they did, but I guess the question is what motivated it. The, the government would say it was motivated by a desire to improve the quality of the health service, and, and that's uh, based on on those standards that SA Health uh, put forward and, and wanted to meet. And this is what Jay Weatherall had to say about it. Well, we've got a 1950s hospital network, uh, 1950s buildings and technologies and distribution of services, a bunch of hospitals that didn't talk to one another and weren't properly integrated into the system. Uh, massive demands, uh, f- you know, insatiable demands for, for, for investment in, in health. Um, we do lots of wonderful things for people these days. People are living longer. So um, those two factors, technological change, ageing population, and then federal government cuts means that we've got massive growth in, in expenditure uh, but falling revenues. And this is Ellen Kerens from the Health Consumers Alliance. Transforming health came at a time when... Government felt that something needed to be done about the the health and well-being of South Australians into the future. So we knew we had an ageing population. We knew that we had very um, expensive, costly health health services. 
But what critics of Transforming Health are saying is that it was probably more motivated by the desire to cut the spending in the health sector. Shadow Health Minister Stephen Wade referenced the fact that Tony Abbott cut funding to states in terms of their health funding and Transforming Health may have been in response to that. Let's remember it was the South Australian response to the Abbott government uh, cuts to health in Transforming Health went well beyond that. It was basically, in my view, a budget-driven initiative. Uh, and if they could, if they could provide services uh, cheaper uh, at a at a centralised location and make the consumers travel to them, uh, that was a good way of saving money. The Health Consumers Alliance also acknowledges that that funding would have played a part in the decisions made in Transforming Health. I think there's an element of truth in that criticism. I think. Um, and we've been very frank about that, that it could have started a lot earlier with talking to consumers and we could have spent more time looking at what those changes might mean. Um, but the cost, I think the cost um, rationale probably wasn't talked about early enough in, in lots of ways. Of course, you could have twin motivation in that the budget concerns brought on by the Abbott government spurred the Wetherill government into making action on healthcare. Before we move on, it's important to understand how the health system is actually funded. So I guess we should acknowledge it's quite a complicated system, but we'll try and distill it down to a few simple points. It is a shared responsibility between state and federal government, and it's a huge proportion of our GDP. So approximately 10% of Australia's GDP is spent on health. Um, but more than 90% of public hospitals and a majority of primary health care services rely on federal funding via Medicare. So you could say that majority of money comes from the federal government and then states are responsible for uh, service delivery and management, and that includes decision-making. State governments are primarily responsible for other preventative programs and community-based primary health services, with the exception of the GP. So that involves uh, drug and mental health services as well as dental services. So that's how the hospital system is funded. And we talked about what motivated transforming health and uh, what they were looking at for it. In terms of how it actually worked, what the government did is they paid a consulting firm around $10 million to have a look at the healthcare system and try and redesign it to make it more efficient. And what this company did is apply a modelling system which looked at patient flows and uh, different ways of arranging hospital systems and try and fitted them together. It always amazes me that you have to spend that much money to get an answer to a problem. Whoever came up with consulting as a business model is a bloody genius. It's lucrative. Maybe we should go into that. <laughs> is it as simple as just playing SimCity around that <laughs> So if we move the hospital here and... <laughs> and then putting a blackout and a tornado over there. <laughs> so one of the main things that uh, this consulting firm came forward with is the idea of, of service centralisation and and creating centres of excellence. And, and those were mostly focused around the, the new Royal Adelaide Hospital, the Lyle McEwen Hospital and the Flinders Medical Centre, making those centres of excellence that patients can come to and receive the best care that they can. Um, and, that are, and that's available 24-7. For example, that the new Royal Adelaide Hospital was focused on trauma and stroke. So the other thing that was identified is that there was potentially a need for service reduction in hospitals. And this is a very unpopular thing to say, but the statistics seem to suggest that um, the government was onto something. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare data showed that back um, 
in 2014-2015, South Australia had an average of 2.9 beds per 1,000 people, um, which might not mean much, but is actually um, higher than the national national average of 2.5 beds, which is a, a quite a large discrepancy. And so at the time, um, Jack Snelling, the former health minister, decided that that was a problem that needed to be rectified. Actually, the highest in the nation, so more... We had more beds available for South Australians per population head than any other part of Australia, uh, which is, you know, a testament to our laziness in a lot of ways. Yeah, I guess it's a difficult thing, though, because, you know, to... um to the general population, that sounds like a good thing. It sounds like we've got a good safety net, but it's an extraordinarily expensive yeah. thing to have as an on and ongoing basis. So um, it's it's one of those things that you can look at in multiple ways. Um, but yeah, quite an interesting statistic, I guess. As part of the centralisation, what they wanted to do was both downgrade some hospitals, uh, such as Modbury and Norlunga hospitals, and also close some hospitals. And the most notorious of those was the Repat Hospital, where they, uh, uh, the Repatriation Hospital, which was a veterans hospital mainly, and they kind of awkwardly announced that. And I guess another tragedy of the whole thing was that Maud was actually employed as an orderly at the Repat Hospital at the time. Yeah, some would say that is the great, the greatest tragedy to come out of Transforming Health, is that I actually got done out of a very good part-time job. I loved being in the cushy public sector. <laughs> what was the kind of mood of the repair hospital at the time board? Look, it's it was pretty grim. There were people camped out on parliament uh, the parliament steps for even months, I think, and people were very very sad about it. And so I think it, it was a really sad time, but I, it, it is difficult to know whether maybe it was the right decision. It was a very old hospital and, and essentially it was hemorrhaging money. So I'm not an expert, but I certainly wouldn't say that it was the wrong decision. And I can say that at Modbury Hospital, where I did a placement for a surgical rotation, I can tell you that the Modbury surgeons were not very happy to be doing toenails and vasectomies all day because their, their, their services had been downgraded. Mm. I guess on that... Doctors overall weren't particularly happy with this, where they said. No, they weren't. Um, if you excuse my voice break, just showing how dissatisfied they were. Actually, the advertiser reported once that about 75% of clinicians were quite unhappy with the lack of consultation that they were given by Transforming Health. Of course, Jay Weatherall disagreed with that. In fact, when we interviewed him, he used you know words describing the level of support they had from clinicians quite often. Here's Jay now. So we, we had an honest conversation with the community, including the medical community, and we said, well, how are we going to grapple with this? And essentially the, all of the professions, the doctors, the nurses, the allied professionals said, well, the most effective from a cost perspective healthcare system is one that puts quality. Roger, why, why do you think the general public found transforming health kind of controversial separately? Well, the people weren't very happy with it either, and, and a lot of that's got to do with the service closure that Maud mentioned before. Hearing that a hospital's closing is is not good news to the public, that's always a bit frustrating, especially if you live nearby. And, and while the centralisation sounds really nice, it can be frustrating to, if you have a, a heart attack or, or an emergency that needs surgery out near Modbury, and then get to the Modbury Emergency Department and be told that you had to be shipped all the way to the Larmacue and the other criticism about Transforming Health is that perhaps its scope was too narrow. It really just focused on, on reconfiguring hospitals and what services they provided. And a lot of people um, seem to think that perhaps because of this huge focus on this, that there was a lot lost on, on primary health care and, and um, 
and a focus on keeping people out of hospitals. Um, that's certainly what, what the Health Consumers Alliance um, CEO, Ellen Cairns, had to say when we asked her. Absolutely. Country health, primary health care, public health policy all should have been at, at the table. And Shadow Health Minister Stephen Maid also agreed with that. In the process, there's been a, a significant um, lack of focus on important areas like preventive health, um, chronic disease management, um, mental health. I guess just to really sort of paint the picture, here's Mark Parnell, member of the Legislative Council for the Greens, uh, with a pretty sweet analogy about primary health care and its importance. Um, it was really uh, short-sighted. Unfortunately, you know, the focus was always on hospitals and, um, and uh, the ambulance, if you like, at the bottom of the cliff. Uh, the Greens' approach is to say, sure, I want an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff in case I fall off, but uh, a fence at the top of the cliff actually is far more effective, you know, in terms of spending the health dollar. And I think we need a lot more emphasis on preventative programs. Um, it's not to say there shouldn't be a hospital bed when you need it. Absolutely there should be. But we've overemphasised that side of the health uh, equation. The other, the other issue was that um, this was all to do with city hospitals and, and um, a lot of people felt like the rural... Um, hospitals and, and health out in, in the regional areas was ignored by these changes. And there wasn't as much focus on um, healthcare for those who are mentally ill as well. And, and, and there's always needed more funding for, for mental health care. I think in a lot of ways, these controversial points actually help us identify kind of the motivations for the policy, given that, as these critics would say, there was a narrow focus of the policy that it occurred right after Abbott reduced federal funding for hospitals and there was very little consultancy time for stakeholders. There's a there's weight to the argument that transforming health was primarily a response to budgetary pressures rather than a proactive, coordinated, system-wide attempt to fix our healthcare system. So the Premier Jay Weatherill conceded that it was focused on hospitals um, and here's his response to some of these criticisms. I mean, look, it was unashamedly about our hospital network because that was the most urgent issue to be grappled with. It doesn't mean you can't do two things at once, and so we continue to invest in the primary healthcare system. So according to the HCA CEO, Ellen Kerens, even if it was a focus on hospitals, it should have been a staged program, and that's certainly not what happened. Here are her thoughts. And maybe it could have been a stepped approach. Maybe it could have been about, well, we need to get the hospital work done first, and then we will. And that's actually where I think we need to go now. So even if the primary goal was to do a hospital system only initially, if it was a coordinated healthcare reconfiguration, then it would have been a stage program. And this gives more credence to the argument. So I guess the important question is, did Transforming Health work? Did it achieve its goals? Well, in regards to service centralisation, I guess it mostly did. They put a lot of money into creating a new hospital and upgrading major centres, and they'll continue this infrastructure investment into the future. Separately, they did have a lot of downgrades. They did close the REPAT, and the HDU at Bodbury has been closed. However, there were also multiple backlinks. For example, cardiology services at the QEH. Of course, bed numbers are down as well. According to the last survey by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, South Australia now has the second highest bed number per population around Australia behind Canberra. So they've had success in this area as well. More, what about the financial side? How has that gone? 
Well, it's an interesting question, Seb, because they did set their sights very high indeed for a savings target of uh, $192 million. That was later downgraded to only a saving of $52.3 million. But it was found by the end of the year, um, by the end of 2017, there was actually a net cost of $17.2 million. This is certainly a very disappointing outcome for a policy that, you know, arguably was a cost-cutting measure, um, at least partially, the whole way through. And that, I think, the Labor government will certainly pay for. Excuse the pun. The Auditor-General attributed this discrepancy between actual and predicted savings um, as largely due to delays in both closing beds and getting rid of uh, healthcare staff. So, another main point is, did, did we actually reach those um, four identified points of quality? In terms of deaths in the hospital, this did fall somewhat from 1.6% to 1.2%. Once again, is still slightly higher than the national average of 1%. Um, and, and the times for discharge or placement have actually decreased. So this is one really good outcome uh, of transforming health in that the average length of overnight stay at a metropolitan Adelaide hospital is down from 6.6 days to 5.6 days. And this is actually um, quite a big saving if we think about how much a hospital bed um, does cost. It's important to note that it's still higher than the national average of five points. So, more why does it matter if people are spending less time in hospital? So, I guess if we think about it purely in the numbers, um, this is you know not to take into account representations or early discharge. But by getting people out of hospital, we know that there's a massive um, saving in terms of clearing hospital beds, that it is a couple of thousand dollars a day to run a, a standard hospital bed. But it also means those people are going back to their homes and, and reducing the risk of hospital-acquired infections. So it is, it is a big thing, um, but it's certainly not a number you can take in isolation. You want to keep them out. Yeah, keep them out. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the most contentious issues is about too many transfers between hospitals, but that unfortunately has actually risen and that's not surprising given the configuration of the hospitals. So certainly a disappointing outcome overall, I would have to say. Roger, are there any other things we should take into account? Another issue that had been identified was that people were waiting too long for their elective surgeries or they, they were cancelled. And Unfortunately, that's another issue that, that has only got worse after transforming health. Uh, waiting times have increased. Jay Weatherall doesn't really think that this is a reflection of transforming health itself. He attributes it more to the moving of the new Royal Adelaide Hospital and the inevitable delays that will come with that. Uh, I think it's, it's wrong to link the current elective waiting list challenges with, tran with the transforming health issue. I mean, a lot of that has got to do with essentially the, the move to the Royal Adelaide Hospital uh, and the need to, to basically um, uh, allow those lists to grow while we manage the move. And so now we're gradually getting back to, to, to get those lists down. So, Roger, you're saying that he would expect to see elective surgery times decrease in the future? Let's hope so, Seb. I'm still waiting for my toenail surgery. <laughs> That's a bit about transforming health, what they did, why they did it, and how it worked. But the question is, where do we go from here? Roger, what do the Liberals want to do? So the Liberals have announced their health policy recently, and, and a lot of what they want to do in terms of hospitals is, is actually reversing a lot of these changes that, that had been made in transforming health. So, so they want the repatriation hospital reopened. Good news for you, Maud. 
might get that job back. Should I work as a doctor or an an orderly (laughs) next year? Who knows? Probably Um, get paid more as an orderly, actually. (laughs) I mean, I think we can all agree Maud's overpayment was quite a strong reason in having to close the hospital. Certainly the $42 on a Sunday. That was the whole issue. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. (laughs) I've been on good holidays, though. They they also want to um, reinstate the high dependency unit at Mudbury Hospital so that um, emergency surgeries and and more complex surgeries can be done there, um, and they want to put more money into the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and improve their cardiology services. Broadly, they don't really like this centralisation program that Labor has championed, and and really they think that more accessible healthcare is what is needed. Here's what Stephen Wade has to say. In terms of those um, those site-specific announcements that you highlight, that, that's primarily what I would call rebalancing. Transforming health, um, even though it had elements that were appropriate, if you like, joining up of specialist services, it, it sucked in services to, um, to the three spine hospitals that were more appropriately delivered at, um, at a more local level. Uh, in relation to the repat, um, the, re- the, the government clearly have, doesn't have the capacity uh, to maintain services at the level needed. Um, we've got a, a significant backlog on colonoscopies, which is it's not uncommon for people to have to wait more than 12 months for a colonoscopy after a, a positive uh, fecal occult blood test uh, when clinicians say it should be done within four. There are now 18 hundred people who are overdue for elective surgery, uh, which is six times the same level last year. Uh, so we, we believe that the, the government has both over-centralised um, medical and surgical services uh, and also reduced capacity below the level to, within which the system can cope. On the converse, the AMA... Uh, whilst they've been quite critical of transforming health, is reluctant to advocate for reversal of all of these things. Here's what they had to say. Look, I think that the solution is to try and provide health care within the context and within the framework of not simply going back and undoing a lot of the things. Because let's not forget, whenever you undo these things, you're actually uh, costing a lot, you're spending a lot of money and costing taxpayer money, taxpayers' money. So without commenting specifically for the repat, what we need to do is to, again, get data about what the, the uh, demand is for, for the procedures and how it can be f- firmly um, re-established in a new model of care. So if, if we're going back and redoing a lot of, undoing a lot of things that have been done, there, there is the potential uh, to focus on things uh, that uh, may not be productive. Uh, that's not to say that that's not the right attitude. I think the right attitude is to ensure that services which were previously done at Repat Hospital can continue to be done. And if it is the case that it can't be done, then maybe it needs to be thought of. When we asked the Healthcare Alliance, they seemed pretty non-committal about these changes. There's any reversal of what is already done. Once again, I go back to the importance of making sure that's clear. Um, with consumers. It's good to remember there was consumers that benefited from the closure of of repat in some ways going forward looking at, um, I guess, more contemporary um, resources and systems and buildings. But also, I think the consumers that weren't pleased about the closure of repat 
they may be pleased for some time if it's reopened, but you really need to make sure that that's not just about pleasing people, that that's about long-term public health policy and what's good um, for, for the bigger picture, all of South Australians. Again, we couldn't get Nick Xenophon on the phone or in person or on the telegraph or through a formal letter. <laughs> I couldn't interpret his smoke signals I saw either. him in Ebenezer Place having coffee the other Maybe day. We just really relaxed. Oh, just God. do like a vlog about it. Anyway, Xenophon did like the idea of repurposing the repat hospital uh, as an outpatient service and did want to st- and does want to stop bed cuts. I guess the question is uh, what do we make of this liberal policy about redoing uh, sorry undoing a lot of transforming health? On one hand, it might just be playing for votes. They know that the public were unhappy with a lot of these changes, so it's, easy, it's an easy vote drawing card. I guess the other interesting point is uh, that AMA did, didn't commit to desiring the strong reopening of the repat, which would suggest that there's not that much support from it within the medical profession. And that's what we should make of these changes. So based on all that, I feel like they could have, you know, saved a few letters in the... I mean, spent a few more letters and actually just called it Transforming Hospital. What do you guys reckon? <laughs> that would have used more letters. <laughs> <laughs> would have been more accurate, I guess. Yeah. It's probably a bit more sexy too. Health, hospitals. Also, imagine like like transformers, but with hospitals. Oh, it's like, well, we haven't seen what the expensive new needs, rock yeah, can yeah, do. Maybe the new rock can turn into a tiger. Anyway, <laughs> so as we mentioned before, Transforming Health was, was mostly focused on, on the tertiary hospitals, the, the large hospitals and, and switching them around. And, and a lot of criticism from our guests has been about ignoring the other parts of health that are really important and, and focusing on more on community health, preventative health and primary health. So here's the AMA again, talking about how we need to move our focus with healthcare from infrastructure and back onto the patient. Look, I think that the core message is that we need to put the emphasis on people in South Australia. And there's a lot of emphasis uh, on buildings and infrastructure. And don't get me wrong, it's obviously important um, and vital that we have good buildings and good infrastructure. But I think the time has come uh, to put the emphasis back on the people. Here's Premier Jay Weatherall talking about primary health care and why the Labor government thinks it's important. In terms of primary health, um, it's a question of where you start on that continuum. Um, The big um, contributor to uh, the primary health um, system is the the Commonwealth government through the Medicare system and GPs do that. So the, that's the big province for reform in primary health care. But if you go back a step earlier, where we are involved again, it's in the whole question of early childhood. And we think this is probably the, the most significant area of investment and opportunity in terms of affecting the health trajectory uh, of every citizen. And that's in the first three but, but five years of life, where the health and um, well-being trajectories fundamentally established um, through uh, parenting and through the, uh, the the environmental factors which affect the the healthy development of children. So we put a lot of effort into that. Our nurse home visiting system, where every child gets a visit from a nurse, 
and where there are challenges, a more sustained home visiting system, we think uh, is a very important initiative and we're, we're going to continue to invest in the early years. The Liberals also have a plan to address some of the shortcomings in our state's uh, primary health care. Here's Shadow Minister Stephen Wade speaking to that. And I think two that are, are particularly important in that area are preventive health. Um, the fact of the matter is that you, you, you save millions of dollars by helping South Australians stay healthy, stay healthy and avoiding uh, the onset of illness, avoiding uh, hospitalisation. And another area is in relation to chronic disease management. Uh, even when people come down with uh, ongoing chronic conditions, if you can uh, actively support them in the community uh, to manage their chronic conditions, uh, you can uh, help them avoid escalations, uh, which which so often uh, lead to uh, lead to hospitalisations. The other points to make are that even though Jay Weatherall talks about this being a federal responsibility, there's also a lot that state governments can do about preventative health. These include community groups about diabetes, for example, that are quite popular around other states. Additionally. The Liberal Party actually want to set up a stronger preventative health focus within Health SA. They want to call it Wellbeing SA. It wasn't clear from that document whether or not Wellbeing SA already existed, so I had to ring SA Health today to find out whether it does exist yet, and I can tell you they hadn't heard of it. So that's one proactive step they're making. One way to look at it is that, as old mate Nigel McBride said in his interview, governments are remembered for what they built. Starting a small-scale community group or starting many of them isn't really a big vote-getter. They don't get much media attention. Not many people know about them as compared with, you know, a giant uh, hospital, for example. So I'm not surprised that this really hasn't had the attention that, that it would have. But what we can see from these policies is that it's something that's becoming more focused upon in the future. So I guess we know that public and primary health care is very important and it's certainly lacking in South Australia at the moment. Multiple advocacy groups have uh, proposed the idea of actually splitting the roles of Chief Medical Officer and Chief Public Health Officer um, to, to sort of put them on equal footing but held by different people. This essentially would mean more oversight of public health in South Australia and is certainly something to consider. Most parties have been a bit non-committal with this and it is only a small change but um, certainly something to consider. Here's Ross Womersley from SACOS briefly explaining the concept. We moved to a situation where there was a chief medical officer rather than having a, someone who was focused on the issues of public health. We think that that was an error and a really poor piece of judgement on the part of the, the health system. As a consequence, there isn't anybody that has real standing in our health bureaucracy who stands up for primary health or disease prevention or even necessarily understands the epidemiology um, that might be involved in some of those public health considerations and some of the major population health strategies that could be embraced. Rural health has also been seen as neglected, with multiple infrastructure issues affecting much of the state. One of the most notable stories we saw from this was in Kingston Hospital, where a private donor had to give $900,000 to fix a, a leaking roof because SA Health refused to pay it. Other issues seen in rural health are a lack of health professionals, a lack of preventative care, and insufficient drug and alcohol rehabilitation services. So we've got some of our guest comments on this. Here is Dr William Tan from the AMA and his thoughts about rural health care in South Australia. There's certainly a lot to be said about optimising health care in country. Now, this is an area that is huge and this is one of the key 
things that uh, AMA has been uh, lobbying for. Um, we, we have asked for an increased scope of clinical services in, in, uh, in some of the larger hospitals so that we are able to do, for instance, low complexity but relatively high volume procedures so that we, as I said before, we're able to um, you know, make it easy for patients to have their treatment given closer to home and also that puts less pressure on the metropolitan hospitals. One of the areas that I think we can do more is in order to increase the attraction for people to stay in the country, um, and, and work in the country, I think we need more emphasis on research and training. So you know there are a lot of medical students who graduate, and you know that uh, at the moment uh, training opportunities are scarce, and we should uh, achieve that by giving them opportunities to train in the countries. You know, and it's widely known, of course, that country doctors are doing it tough on their own there. You know, for instance, if you are the only or only a few doctors in town, you have to rotate your on-call services meeting yourselves. And, uh, you know, there, there is uh, the question of safe hours for those doctors. So by increasing the training, you minimize uh, the risk of them getting burnt out. And overall, you increase, a, you know, the ability of a, of a safe, a more safer waking environment for, for the doctors there. Um, Ambulance has been an issue, so we need to ensure that ambulances are of a, a number so that when patients do need ambulance services, they're not having to drive themselves to, to hospital, uh, which has occurred, as you know. So I think it would be fair to say that the Liberal Party has recognised the shortcomings in rural healthcare in South Australia, and they've actually recently promised a $20 million rural health workforce plan. So the idea of this is to get more workers, um, healthcare workers, in regional South Australia with specific funding for Yorktown, Mount Barker and McLaren Vale hospitals. The Labor government is also working to rectify this problem with the promise of a $140 million cash injection, excuse the pun, to health infrastructure. The Xenophon team sort of following on in a similar vein with a capital, excuse the pun again, vein injection. God, I'm, I'm on fire today. <laughs> um, with a, with Somebody a, give us some accusation. <laughs> First have also proposed expanding the use of telemedicine in rural areas. So, Roger, what do you reckon? Well, you seems... lived in the country last year. <laughs> I is, did is indeed. I was a, spent a whole year in the sunny Wyala and uh, spent a lot of time in good old Wyala Hospital, which was quite an experience. Oh, nice. um, it's actually quite new. Um, Wyala Hospital looks quite nice. But it is encouraging to see that all the parties seem to recognise that rural health uh, does need to be indre- addressed and and perhaps it was a little bit overlooked with the, the big makeover in the city. Obviously, Liberals seem to have the most comprehensive plans, and that might reflect that a lot of their voters are out in the, the country heartlands. Seb, I guess along with rural health in South Australia, some would argue that mental health services have also been neglected. What do you reckon? Is that a fair criticism? Well, the Mental Health Strategic Plan of FA was released in December 2017, which looked at this very issue. What they found was there was a lack of integration of services, so people would move through different aspects of the mental health care system without continuity, as well as the lack of sustainable funding, meaning a lot of initiatives weren't able to be uh, maintained, and no targeted response. The Liberals have announced that they would like to put in more services for borderline personality disorder, paediatric psychiatry, as well as substance abuse while the 
Labor government announced in late February a $22 million mental health package, also including uh, services for borderline personality disorder and drug outreach programs. While Xenophon has said that he would like to see short-stay services reinstated at the La McEwen Hospital and would like more benchmarks published of mental health outcomes. I guess, um, much like the approach to rural health, it does seem that all the major parties have recognised that there is a big problem in this uh, sphere of health. I guess um, none of it seems, from you know, from my opinion, to be a very coordinated strategy or a very um, comprehensive strategy. It is good to see that some of the areas uh, that are that were identified as issue areas by the mental health strategic plan are being addressed, um, and certainly it's interesting to see a focus on some of this borderline personality um, disorder services. We know that that um, uses up a lot of resources in the acute setting, but. You know, I think health strategy really does have to be a bit of a long-term, well-thought-out thing, and and I'm concerned that some of this doesn't really um, meet those criteria. All right. Seb, you keep talking about this goddamn clinical data (laughs) analytics unit, and, I mean, you said transforming health was boring, but this was the (laughs) shit out of me. Can you explain... Why you? Why the AMA is advocating for it, and and what it's actually going to do? I will. I will not apologise for talking about the clinical data analytics unit. Not now. Not on my deathbed. What the AMA is proposing is that the government fund a independent and transparent centre that publishes key patient outcome and proposal funding data. So currently, what happens is SA Health, which is this big opaque ministry kind of group. They'll look at this kind of data, but they don't release it to the public. And what that means is the information they collect can be politicised in various ways. It means that information that is particularly attractive to the government can be released. It means things that the government really doesn't want everybody to know will sometimes not be released. And so what the AMA is proposing is that this data be automatically released by a central authority. Sorry, I just died. This is what Dr. William Tan of the AMA has to say about his proposed data analytics unit and the response to it. If you think about it in the most simplistic way, you need to know what the capacity of the health system is so that you can provide the services to provide the care. For instance, I'm a gastroenterologist. Now, we know that there is a national bowel cancer screening program which has been rolled out, and we need to know how many of these People will require colonoscopy, and how can we fund them, the services, appropriately so that you're not waiting, you know, 12 months to have a procedure. In order to get this, you, you have to have good data. So one of our key messages to government this time is to say, look, we need um, a fully funded clinical analytics unit which can collect robust data independent data, but also transparent data. And that data can then be available to clinicians as well as to government so that we can use that data, use that data to make policies. You can't just make policies on the run. You need information. Well, how would you evaluate this, Maud? When we sort of asked this question to the major parties, the Liberals were a little bit sort of... They they were accepting of it... 
but made no real commitment. And Weatherall really did emphasise that data doesn't win votes. And I think he's right, but it does sort of ignore the question as to whether they would support this. So it is something to keep an eye on in the future, and I think it's certainly important. But it's certainly not going to be a um, election-winning thing. You know, you don't, you can't make a headline with a clinical data analytics unit. I'm surprised proposed. you could even make a podcast. Yeah, we're going to spend ten percent of our GDP making a giant spreadsheet. That's not going to win any votes. But I think it would be a good, um, good thing to turn to in the future. So we haven't really talked about the Xenophon in the room yet. Um, Seb, what has what has SABS come forward with about health policy for this election? Well, they've come up with a few different ideas about uh, separate areas like rural health and mental health, as we mentioned. There's also been some snags along the way. One of the interesting points was when Xenophon went to talk about the health budget. So initially he made the error of saying it was about $3.5 billion instead of six, which is an easy mistake to make, certainly. It's also, I mean, three and six are very close together, so... <laughs> You know, all that's missing is the four and the five. And I hate it when I accidentally think I have three like, billion more dollars than I do. It's like when you I look do. at your bank account and instead of, you know, 30 bucks, you've got... 60, instead billion. of 60 bucks, you've got 30 bucks. He actually re- intends to remove a lot of it from the health budget. So what he wanted to do was pump money into regional growth. And the way he was going to do this was to move money out of the health budget. And he managed to backtrack on that in a few hours, which makes sense for a few reasons. One, he actually wants to put money into regional health, which would have to be from the health budget. But separately, we know that he's also promised to increase funding for health in a lot of ways. So, so it was kind of a nonsense cool description there. SABS certainly have copped a lot of criticism for being unable to cost any of their promises. So it doesn't surprise me that this isn't a bit, been a bit of an issue for them. And from a purely selfish thing, if he starts cutting the health budget, who's going to employ me as an intern next year? Yeah, you've already lost your job as an intern. I know, I need a job, desperately. Intern. Well, I mean, as soon as we get through those APRA complaints, Maud, we've got a, you know, a chance of getting you a job. <laughs> So the other thing that Nick Xenophon came forward with was suggesting a royal commission into the state of South Australia's healthcare. I've always wanted to have a royal commission into Maud, but what, what even is a what is a commission? What what do they do? <laughs> what is a Maud? <laughs> so basically, it would be a formal, independent public inquiry, which can be instigated by a state or federal government. But it's a little bit unclear what he wants from it. I mean, it is all well yeah. and good to say there's a problem. Let's do a royal commission into it. But um, it doesn't seem like it's actually got that much support. Here's what the AMA had to say about a Royal Commission into South Australian healthcare. The Royal Commission announcement uh, by uh, SAPS has been lacking in detail and context. Um, the AMA is unable to, uh, to put a firm position on this in the absence of uh, information uh, on its scope and the expectations um, Whilst we understand that it's important to consider what went wrong in the health system, it's more important to get on with fixing the errors. Um, we're unable to comment on what we don't know. So there are a lot of things about the, about the, the Royal Commission that we don't know, and the AMA uh, cannot form a... Uh, in the absence of information in that regard. So the Shadow Minister for Health, Stephen Wade, also was not really in favour? The, the, the Liberal Party believes that um, the time and money invested in a Royal Commission um, would be better invested uh, in health services. 
Um, we believe that from day we, we can't we can't afford to wait um, months, if not years, for lawyers to tell us how to fix the health system. We want to be working with health professionals um, to deliver uh, deliver change from day one. So no, we we don't support a rule. And Ellen Terrans from the HCA also a little bit uh, lukewarm had a lukewarm response to it. I'm not particularly um, engaged with the idea of the um, Royal Commission, probably. Um, because I, I think we've actually, we've got a good healthcare system. Um, what we're seeing, I think, is it trying to cope with the, um, the demands of the community, the ageing population, and an ever-reducing budget. And I'm not sure that his Royal Commission will help either of those three, particularly the budget aspect. We um, unfortunately didn't get a chance to ask Jay Wetherill or anyone from um, the Labor Party, but... Uh, presumably it would be a similar response. Wait, right, Morty, are you suggesting they don't want a Royal Commission to look at uh, how well they've performed in health? <laughs> this is kind of like when you don't do your homework and you just come up with some kind of shit to tell the teacher the next day. He hasn't given any details about it. People vaguely enjoy the idea of a Royal Commission. We're not really that sure of what it is. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that... It, it is a like, bit of a buzzword, isn't it? Yeah, and and if the, the public hear, oh, healthcare is bad, they're like, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, we should look into why it's so bad, but not really sort of explaining how or what in particular they're going to... Yeah, what they're look looking into. for. Um, because I guess the other difference between this and the um, ICAC sort of inquiry for Oakden was that that was highly specific. And I'm, I'm just not quite sure what a Royal Commission into South Australian healthcare even means. The other thing that Nick Xenophon's proposed is raising the smoking age to 21, uh, the legal smoking age, which was an interesting idea to announce. This is what Shadow Health Minister Stephen Wade had to say about it. Well, I, th- I think it's a, it's a policy worth looking at, but let, let's remember that 80% of people who take up smoking do so before the age of 17. So raising the age to 21 isn't going to stop them. They've already ignored the legal age uh, for smoking. But you know, when, when, when money is tight, when um, the impact is, is, uh, is significant, we need to make sure that our policies are evidence-based. Uh, and we would say that the, the case is yet to be made on that particular announcement. A report released on the end of February, which is likely to have ramifications on the election, given that it dealt with the conduct of several of uh, Jay Weatherall's minister, is the Oakden Aged Care Facility Report. Maud, can you tell us a bit about this report? What was the Oakden Facility and why does it matter? So the Oakden Facility was a, an aged care facility um, in the northeastern suburbs of Adelaide. And it was sort of renowned for looking after some of the most difficult patients. And what happened over a number of years is that there were numerous accounts of abuse, neglect and basically a systemic failure. And it all sort of came to a head last year when the Oakton facility was shut down. And then the report has been released recently. And I think it would be fair to say that this is an enormous blight on the Wetherill government's sort of management of health. In fact, he says that this is one of his main regrets as Premier. Oh, look, there's there's plenty of things. Some of our most vulnerable older people have also suffered uh, at the hands of um, people that have done the wrong thing. So not being able to prevent that is is obviously a, an enormous uh, regret. Here's Jane Musseret of the Council for the Ageing talking about what the Oakton scandal really involved and why it was such a big deal. 
so the, the difficulty, of course, here is that the state government was running a nursing home that was way below standard and indeed was abusive, used restraint illegitimately and was at the very, very worst end of um, poor care for older people. So two big problems from a state government point of view. One is that it happened and it should never happen. It, it is intolerable in 2018 that we have a nursing home that so badly fails accepted contemporary standards. And the second thing is, of course, uh, the Independent Commissioner Against Corruption brought out his report which examined levels of responsibility from both the bureaucracy in state government but also the political leadership in state government uh, within the, uh, the election campaign. And that, uh, while that found no politicians um, guilty of maladministration, it was certainly critical of several aspects of, of political leadership so that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us once again on this big, exciting journey about health. We've looked at a lot of areas of health. We looked at transforming health, why it was so controversial. We found that there's some desire to wind back these changes, but it's not super likely to happen. We looked at new areas of focus, preventative health, mental health and rural health, and Xenophon's weird budget ideas. But I guess the real question is more, Roger, what's next? I'm so glad you asked, Sebastian. <laughs> next time, we'll be looking at two of my favourite areas, energy and the economy. Two quite big topics, Lord. Why are we doing them all in one? <laughs> so the calendar is moving quite fast, faster than, than we expected, and unfortunately we're not going to have time to release the two episodes separately. So as they Editing say, takes a long as time. they say at the finale of any good TV show, extended episode. Yeah, next time episode. we'll have an extended episode extravaganza for you. So what are we going to talk about, Roger? Yeah, I mean, two really important topics. So energy is a big one and, and it's really important in South Australia. Obviously, we all remember the blackout that happened a couple of years ago and, and Jay Weatherall's even said that he thinks that this election will be a referendum on renewable energy policy specifically, his party's renewable energy policy. And the economy, that's a big one as well. We'll be talking about jobs in, in South Australia and, and how we're going to keep going despite the hold and closure and other important things that have happened. So if you're not excited by now, I don't know what will excite you really. Stay tuned next week where we may or may not have an interview with Elon Musk. Just a bit of a we teaser. may not have we, one. We, don't, <laughs> we, <don't. laughs> we actually do have a tweet from Elon Musk that will play live on yeah. the next episode. <laughs> and Roger will be reading that out loud. Can confirm though that when we interviewed Jay Weatherall, there was a picture of he and Elon Musk on his desk in front of the picture of he and his family. Yes. Yeah. And I think the wife had the same setup at home. It was her and Elon Musk and then her and Jay behind <laughs> her it. Her and Elon. I believe she actually cut out um, Jay Weatherall's eyes and stuck Elon with it. So, see you next time. Bye-bye. Love ya. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to subscribe and, and review and everything else that other podcasters tell you to do. Thanks. Bye. Heaps good politics. Come on and put us to the test. Make a change in the nick of time. Forget the rest of Heaps good politics. Yeah.